<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Ta for Ta, Women's Success China, is powered by the Seneca Network. We are a biweekly podcast focused on capturing the lives of women in and from greater China at the top of their professional game. I'm your host, Juliana Batista. Many thanks to the entire team at SUP China, including co-producer Kaiser Kuo, Jason McRonald for editing, and Jamie Lay for marketing. Speaking of, help us out and take a few minutes to fill out our brief listener survey, the link to which can be found in the show description. Your responses are appreciated and help us create better content for you. This week, we are joined by Jenny Dorsey, professional chef and creative, with a mission to use culinary arts as a platform to evoke introspection, empathy, and real emotion. What I really appreciated about her, and I couldn't quite pinpoint until listening back on the episode, was her tenacity. You'll hear throughout our conversation about moments where she was so far outside her realm, but persists. Guided by this powerful drive, and also wanting to shape the narrative and being bold in doing so. I found this quite inspiring, and I think you will too. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Ta for Ta, Women's Success China. We are really excited today. We're joined by Jenny Dorsey. She is a professional chef and founder of Studio Tao, and we'll learn more about her various career endeavors that we are Uh, entering right now. So really excited to have you on the show, Jenny. Thanks for having me. And I think, you know, a great place to start, and we usually start at this spot, is, you know, just telling listeners a bit about yourself, almost a highlights reel of your career, kind of, can you paint in some broad brushstrokes, you know, uh, your career trajectory and, uh, you know, who you are? Yeah, absolutely. So I uh, am a career changer into the food world. I actually started uh, my career after college as a management consultant within the fashion and luxury goods space uh, at Accenture. I moved to New York. I went to school in Seattle, so moved to to the big city um, in hopes of pursuing this like fashion career that I thought I always wanted and pretty quickly realized that I liked, you know, the glamour of having this title or, you know, being able to be next to these designers and buy clothes. But I really had this huge hole in my heart on like, I didn't like what I was doing. I wasn't passionate about career. I didn't really like the people I was working with. Um, and I just didn't really know what to do. So I was really depressed. And I honestly, like I went through so many things trying to fix it. Um, I tried to buy a lot of stuff. I was binge eating for a while and had went to like therapy for that. It was like a whole thing. And finally, I came to this conclusion that I just needed a break. Um, I didn't actually want to take the, the big leap of faith and go pivot my career. So instead, I really took like a pretty cowardly approach in, in retrospect and deferred having to deal with it by applying to business school. So I got into Columbia Business School Early Decision which meant I had about nine months before I actually started work, uh, started going to school. So um, instead of usually people just continue working during that time, I decided to quit my job and go to culinary school. And I never thought that culinary school would 
you know, pivot into a career. Honestly, I, I th- saw it as a, like a creative sabbatical before I would go back to, you know, business school and go work in consulting again and make tons of money and whatever. Um, and I, in culinary school, I just really fell in love with the people that I was with. I was attending an evening class. So it was mostly other career changers as well. I just I realized so much about myself, mostly that, you know, I had really put a lot of emphasis on you know, surrounding myself with people who were very similar to me, very ambitious, which is great, but also I think many times put a lot of uh, importance on the wrong things and really cared too much about job titles and success and money. Um, And culinary school and the people there helped teach me, I think, a more deep level of just appreciating myself and kind of tapping into what I truly enjoyed. So um, I still went back to school um, at business school, but after a semester realized it was just not the right fit for me. So ended up leaving early and going just to figure out who I was. And that was a really scary time because I had a lot of outstanding debt, but also I just genuinely didn't know what I wanted to do in the food industry besides that I wanted to be in that industry. Um, I didn't want to work in restaurants for the rest of my life. That's a really, really hard career and lifestyle. And it wasn't quite what I enjoyed either. Um, I kind of bounced around and did all these different internships. It was fun in its own way. I was a barista. I was a door-to-door juice salesperson I in this like weird twist of fate um I was like literally going door to door to some of like the most uh biggest like venture capital firms in Silicon Valley trying to sell them green juice and uh, got (laughs) access to some of these names like I would tell my husband like oh I like meant blah and blah today trying to sell him green juice and he's like wait that guy is like worth billions of dollars so there was <laughs> some funny funny things that happened during that time worked in PR a little bit um, ended up at a job in food and beverage R&D at a place called Le Pan Quotidien which is a French boulangerie or French Belgian boulangerie they're um a chain in the U.S. and they also own the stores in the U.K. and France um, and we have franchises everywhere as well. So I was doing menu R&D for all our corporate owned stores and very quickly realized like I really enjoyed that kind of work. I just didn't happen to like the company very much. Um, so branched out on my own, started kind of doing my own culinary consulting, mostly working with restaurants. Also during all the internships that I had done, had picked up some styling skills. So I was started to do some food styling, some food photography, and slowly was able to build my client base where I was consulting essentially full-time. Um, during that time, I, it was also very satisfying to consult and you know be able to run my own business, but I wasn't ultimately being creative for the things that I wanted to be creative about. Um, I was, you know, making food that other people requested or making, you know, a lot of times for restaurants, you make a menu, but it needs to be engineered so that it's the right cost or it looks a certain way or it hits certain flavor profiles for their target audience. So it wasn't just me experimenting willy-nilly for myself. So as a creative outlet, my husband and I um, created this supper club called Wednesdays. And at the time, it was just a way to get our friends together. I would make the food and he's a mixologist, um, so he would make the drinks. And it was supposed to be this like casual, how do we get people to engage on a deeper level, um, mm. talk about things that were, you know, not just work or the subway or the weather, but, you know, get into nitty gritty things while being able to also, you know, have us experiment and have fun. And by like the first or second dinner, we had these strangers showing up, friends of friends, people we didn't know, like literally just 
random people and at this used to be our apartment. So I think pretty quickly we realized that there was something here that we wanted to tap into. And slowly that grew into this pop-up dinner series that we ran for a few years. Um, that was that got more press and more popular, which was really great. We went to San Francisco and got press there, et cetera. But slowly, I also realized that it had, you know, it was kind of a double-edged sword. We had gone so popular that coming to our dinners became sceny and it no longer became about emotional connection. It no longer became about really getting to know other people. Um, and it also really didn't have like the impact that I wanted. There were bigger social issues that I wanted to talk about um, that I think, you know, at the beginning I was too scared to, but then towards the end I felt like I had no way to because of the confines of, you know, just the, the structure we had built ourselves. Mm -hmm. So um, as a way to get back to what I really cared about, I remember we had a pop-up at the beginning of 2018 and I was like, no more, like I can't, this is not right. It's not what I want to do. Um, I don't know what it is. I just kind of shut down and didn't do anything for six months. Or I was working, but I wasn't doing any pop-ups. And we rebranded it during that time, turned into a nonprofit. And now um, Studio Tao is a community organization. We're a nonprofit. And we do content and we do live experiences that specifically have to do with food art and social impact. So every dinner that we do is very themed. We have one that's about the Asian American experience, one that's about cognitive dissonance, and one that's about the invisibility of female pain. So it's very, it's overt what we're talking about. There's yeah. nobody comes and is, I mean, I want them to have a good time, but no one's just having a good time to have a good time. Um, so that has felt so much better um, and just really helped like clear up the direction of where my life was headed. Yeah, and I think you give a really overarching view, I think, with with detail. So we're all kind of teased about, you know, where where we can take this interview and, you know, what we can talk about. And I think I actually really want to backtrack a bit with you and just go back because I think you point out that this was a really key changing point for you in your career as you talked about, you know, leaving your MBA for culinary school and you said it was a really vulnerable moment. Would you say that's like one of the most vulnerable moments in your career? Like what was going through your mind at the time. I think it's so much easier with hindsight 2020 to, to say, you know, that was the right choice. Um, but I just kind of want to get a little bit more in, in the mind space because it seems like that was such a pivotal moment for you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's funny when I look back on it, I knew the whole first semester I was not having a good time. Um, besides, I mean, I met my husband at business school, so I guess I was having a good time that, with that. But like, I was, I was not invested with the course curriculum because I had also gone to business school undergrad. So um, I guess, sorry, everyone who might be listening, who's interested in going to business school, but there is a lot of repeat <laughs> curriculum in the first, especially the first year. Um, if you have a business background. So I was not engaged. I just didn't want to be there. And I think the big thing was, I just didn't like a lot of the people I was with. Um, and not because they're bad people or anything, but our interests just weren't aligned anymore. I, again, as I said, I, I used to really be surrounded by people who were like, yeah, you want to make the most money. You want to get that big uh, bonus. You want to have that big promotion. And you want to say you work at McKinsey, like all of that stuff. Um, and that was really where I put, you know, the, the whole emphasis in my life. And after culinary school, I didn't really feel that way anymore. But when I went back into Columbia, that was again, what people were kind of jostling about at networking, like, oh, I came from Bain, and I work at Goldman. And I just I couldn't connect with these people. And I was so I was just tired of it. Um, so 
I, this all manifested in me really just not being present. I think I literally wasn't on campus very frequently, but also I had terrible grades. So really at the end of the semester, I got called into the dean's office and was like, you have very bad grades. And like Columbia is a pass fail system. Uh, most of the MBA like uh, organizations are now, but like mm. if you fail enough classes, obviously you still get in trouble. Or if your so many classes are at the brink of failing, you know, then you kind of obviously get called basically into detention. And I remember her saying like, you know, most people who have as bad grades as you do, it's because they don't have any business background. So they're really struggling to understand like microeconomics. But that's clearly not the case because you already took microeconomics in undergrad and got a 4.0. So you just aren't applying yourself. So like, what's going on? Um, and I obviously argued with her. And I was like, no, that's not true. You know, I just had a bad semester. Um, I like I had all sorts of excuses, but she was right. Uh, she was quite right. And she told me that she felt I needed to take some time off. I then again argued with her. And she told me that, you know what, I like, they're not going to let me come back for the next semester, I should take at least six months off, and then I could come back in the summertime. So essentially, I had at least six months off, regardless. Um, and she was like, keep in touch, you're basically an open, you can come back anytime, just not next semester. Um, I had like this total meltdown and I was like oh my god my life is over um but honestly it was a blessing in disguise even though I felt a little bit at the time that it was forced on me I mm. had to go and find something else to do with my life and what better thing to do I suppose is try out the the career that I kind of wanted but was too afraid to actually pursue now I kind of had that safety net there of going back to school if I wanted to but once I started in the food world it became pretty clear there was no point in going back to school yeah that's interesting um how you said almost like this decision was forced upon you it seems like from a lot of the the steps that you've taken in your career that you know there's this this power for you in being able to to create something from the ground up and really be able to call yeah. the shots um was that a hard at the time to to have someone say you know this this is something that you know you don't have full autonomy over absolutely um i'm an only child and sometimes my friend will tell me that I act like an only child. I'm definitely used to getting my way or arguing my way to get what I want. And it felt I was like trying every, you know, every approach with my Dean. I was crying and then I was like yelling and then I was like sad. And, and she was just like, no, you just can't just take some time off. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, you, you made this big change and then did you create almost a plan for what you want to do next? Did you know, okay, I'm going to go work, try to work in some top level Michelin star restaurants, get better grasp of the culinary world after, is that a part of the program that you normally had to take? You know, I just want to like understand a bit more about kind of how you, how you hack your way to success in this world, because, um, you know, it, it's fascinating and it, it probably was really daunting when you, you first kind of, left the MBA track to go do something else? Yeah, I mean, I didn't have a great sense of what I was going to do. I decided to start a little blog for myself to at least track what I was doing every day so I didn't fall into a pit of despair, which I fell into for a few uh, weeks for sure. But 
as part of my culinary school, you do have to complete something called an externship, which is just a, an internship. I'm not actually sure why it's called an externship, but you go work at a restaurant for a set number of hours to complete it. And that way you get in the field training. So I knew I always wanted to work in a Michelin starred restaurant, but it's somewhat difficult to land an externship at one of the big places right off the bat. And if you are one of the lucky ones, you know, rumor has it, I can't confirm because I've only worked in those kitchens as a slightly more experienced cook, um, is that Mm. they're really mean to the externs and they'll call you up at like two in the morning and make you just work for no reason. So I didn't really want to do that. So I ended up, you know, a couple steps down, I worked at an upscale place in West Village called Market Table, which is like a really lovely um, American, new American restaurant. And really just enjoyed the chef there. He, uh, I later up uh, later on, like learned more about his life, and he also had this very interesting career into the food world. He used to do something completely different, and he ended up being a, like a reservationist at Eleven Madison Park, and then mm-hmm. went back to school for food, and then ended up being a chef and worked in all these different types of places, etc. And he, I just remember him saying, like, you know. I don't see you working in restaurants forever. I really think that you're meant to go and just try out all these different things. I could really see you doing more food media things. Maybe you would like make the food on Oprah. I don't remember what exactly he referenced, but he was such a, such a great boss and like encouraged me to go try some other things because so many other restaurants will tell their externs just stay here and work forever and be a robot. Um, so that like really helped propel me to go just say like, hey, this is a time where I'm not making any money anyway. Um, I have a little bit of savings. Like if I can get as much experience as I can under my belt, at least I can figure out what I do or don't like. And at the beginning it was mostly, I don't like this. I don't like this. I don't like this. Or I don't really like this part, but I like this other aspect of it. Um, I really like the teamwork in a restaurant, but I don't like the hours or I don't like how stressful it can be, etc. It was just figuring out all of those balances for myself. No job is ever going to be perfect. But I think finding my boundaries of like, this is just, I can't sign up for like, I can't accept this lifestyle or I can't accept this as long as it get, offers me these other feelings or these other, you know, sense of stability or whatnot. So I, I spent like a good year just really doing that. And I many times felt pretty aimless during that time because I was just jumping from job to job. But again, in hindsight, it was really invaluable experience just to learn that from the get-go instead of, you know, assign, like signing on for a full-time job and realizing I didn't like it three months in. Yeah. And it also seems like you are someone that's willing to kind of take the jump on things and like have the grit to do it. I, I just, I'm getting this sense from you. I mean, even from the way that, you know, we had some initial, you know, conversations and back and forth. Um, it seems like you're you're just gonna you're gonna take that jump. And I I wanted to know, you know, was the start of Wednesdays kind of a jump moment, or was it, uh, you know, again something that was thought of or calculated over a long period of time? No, I mean you're definitely right in that I I I'm definitely one to kind of throw myself in things because I do now. Uh, feel you have to at least try because I don't ever want to wake up and feel really 
sad or feel like I didn't I didn't even explore what was possible. Uh, that is more daunting to me than going out and really failing. I failed so many times. I I feel you can really build up a like a, a resistance to failing or be a more acceptance to failing. Um, so for Wednesdays, which actually used to be called I Forgot It's Wednesday, but we shortened it a little bit. It's kind of a long title. Uh, I remember I was talking to my then boyfriend, now husband, about how we never got to know anybody at school. He was still in school at the time. All I wanted to do was just have a deeper conversation with these people. I remember someone had um, was talking about their relationship with their grandmother and then somebody else joined our table and immediately the conversation turned to work. And I just wanted to build a table where people could actually be themselves. Um, so we threw up a website in like a week and then just invited a couple random people at a time. And I put together this very complicated menu and in, in hindsight, it was too complicated for our first meal. And the first meal was like a total mess. I mean, everything came out in the wrong order. We had these like really bright lights because I like white light in our apartment. And everybody was like, just like sitting under like fluorescent light, essentially. Our dog was there eating people's food. Like we lived in this tiny one bedroom in um, New York. And honestly, for the two of us, it was a decent size, but with like eight people in the room. Everybody was so cramped. And, like people so were like cramped. sweating. Um, so yeah, there, it could have been better, but honestly, like I had such a good time, you know, there's like all the things that you've done wrong, but then you grasp onto the few, few things that just kind of tell you to keep going. And immediately we knew that we wanted to at least just keep trying this out to see where it went because it was like very addicting. It was so exciting to, you know, be able to share something of yours with other people. People. And I think we did that for like three months before we decided to really take a jump and do a 100 person event, even though the biggest event we'd ever done was 10 people. It was a huge disaster. Again, uh, we had rented this venue that was way too expensive. We rented like these, we actually rented really nice uh, benches and chairs and um, tables that were super heavy. So it was really hard to move them in and out. We rented like all these plateware that was like impossible to wash and glassware and we put stickers on them. So I remember like at 2 a.m. I was like peeling stickers off this mason jar. My thumb is like you're bleeding. Uh, we ordered, we rented a tree. Trees are apparently very expensive to rent in case anybody's wondering. And they sent the wrong size tree. So then it was too small and then it was too tall. And like we got this artificial turf. I mean, it was a whole thing. So anyway, um, we learned a lot from that. And that was kind of the moment where we, the two of us realized like we either got to do it or we stop because this was insane. Like either we do this again and we do it better or we really stop because we've lost so much money and this is like a hot mess. Uh, so yeah, I, I think that's been the theme of just the food industry or the food career that I've had is just going for it and trying it out. And you actually brought up this point to me too, that, you know, it, it's a nebulous concept, the idea of engaging people over food and drink. And I was kind of mm -hmm. hoping that you could explain that a bit more. And you, you make this point that it, it's difficult to to operate a nonprofit um, around this, this nebulous idea and um, maybe how that's evolved over time or yeah. why you think it's such a nebulous concept. Yeah, I think a lot of people 
or at least I would say most people have uh, have feelings about food and drink as you know this time of gathering. It, it feels good, etc., or it's supposed to feel good. And because of that, everybody has this like PR statement of like you know food and drink that you know brings us to the table. But when we actually get to the table, it's not the like something magically happens and we all become friends and we share these vulnerabilities. All of that also has to be an orchestrated event. And I think a lot of people get to the, everyone is now literally physically at the table, but then we haven't taken that next step because as, especially as adults, you know, we're nervous about being vulnerable in front of strangers. I don't want to talk about my dog dying, my grandpa passing in front of these people I've never met, especially if I don't feel like they're going to respond in the same way to me, or I don't have a structure in place to start talking about these things. There's so much responsibility that the host really needs to bear um, for people to connect deeply with food or without food. But I mean, in this case with food. And I think a lot of times, even at the beginning, we didn't realize that. And for a lot of other operators that I see in the food business, I don't think they really I don't, it's not that they don't care, but it's maybe they don't have the time or it's just so much work that it's so much of a burden in addition to worrying about rent, worrying about whatever else, you know, other business operations that they have to worry about. Um, Having people connect really is like a conscientious effort. So I think during the first two years, all we were learning is how do we get people to even open up because we can't force them into anything. Nobody likes those icebreakers. Nobody wants to go around the table and introduce themselves, but people desperately want to talk to each other. People want to be heard. They want to feel like they're not alone. So what are the things that we can put in a little toolkit and offer them at the you know, at the table, like physically or metaphorically, so that they're able to open up. Um, and we tried things that worked and some things that didn't. But one of the things that I remember that I always really liked is we, instead of um, giving people named cards, right, you usually see name cards at tables, um, we would ask them a question in advance. And it would be a pretty probing question. So, for example, one of the questions we used was, what is your biggest failure? And how has that shaped you? And that we would ask everyone the same question. It was part of the ticket checkout. So you had to answer the question to get the ticket. If your question, if your answer was bad or like you typed in like not applicable, you would just, we would just refund you your ticket. So there was a, a, a self-selecting process. It's really important to guard the people who do end up coming because you only have one, if you have one bad apple at the table, they ruin the experience for everyone. And I think that's a luxury too. At the beginning, we couldn't just turn people away, but soon when we were selling out, we could care more about curating the guest list. So once you have people bought in, they answered the questions, people would write these essays on their name cards and we would use their answers as name cards so instead of reading you know rob like there was still a name on it so you could find your seat but instead of just rob it'd be rob and then rob's biggest failure and you walk around the whole table we would encourage everyone to make sure to read everyone's answers before they sat down and all of a sudden you know way more about these nine people next to you then you would have probably learned in like months of conversation with them and I think that just really sets the stage of like we're serious about what we do if we're gonna we also would stand up there and share our failures be vulnerable and it's about like I'm willing to do this I hope that you are too and I I think that's like a big a big lead by example moment that I learned 
um, along the way. Now that we're doing more focused the thematic dinners, um, for example, for Asian and America, we send out lists of questions that we help like kind of push people to um, talk about during the experience. And every single one of the courses is actually mapped to a different topic. So for example, one of the courses talks about the model minority myth and literally like you are going to talk about that. It's integrated into the food, which we can talk about later. It's integrated into the virtual reality experience, which we can also talk about later. Like you can't take that, take off your headset and start talking about the weather. It just like would feel very strange. So you are suddenly just getting into it with these four to six people at your table. We also reduced the table size because we felt that worked better. Um, just like little things like that has been really about priming people and making sure that they kind of commit to it. And then also the right audience so that they know what they're signing up for. And like when they show up, they are ready to go. Yeah, I was going to say it's probably this balance or chicken and egg of the type of people that would be drawn to these food and drink experiences would be open to, to the experience, but also getting people in the right space the right mental space, the right emotional space to, to actually experience um, the food and drink experiences so that makes a lot of sense a big part uh, of it's also like literally where the thing is held um hmm. many times you know especially when you're a new pop-up you're like just trying to find space anywhere at someone's house and whatever at a restaurant that's closed a coffee shop um and we learned like how the facade of the place looks really does change how you feel and so for example asian in america when we host our own um, we always host them with like a museum so that when people go to museums or art galleries or you know kind of that they're in the mindset to learn they're in the mindset to listen um, they're in the mindset to observe like they're assuming that there's going to be something educational intellectual there because that's what museums are um, you know versus if we held it at an empty club it would be a very different experience which we have also done for a separate experience that had involved dance which i think made a lot more sense in that space it was like this dungeonous dark space and it was about going into the depths of ourselves so i think also finding like the right spatial map for what your dinner looks like makes is really important yeah for sure and actually you you just teased asian in america i would love if you could tell listeners a bit more about the concept i think you know um, of your work, it, it really is in line with the the types of content we cover at Sub China, and just kind of learning a bit more about you know the concept in general. And then I'd love to dive into maybe like a specific course from that menu, from that experience, and and understand you know how you go about creating uh, the discrete elements that that make up the experience. Yeah, of course. Um, so Asian in America is a exhibition and dinner experience that talks about the Asian American identity through food and drink, virtual reality, and poetry. There's six courses and six courses of food and three courses of cocktails, and each of them talk about a different topic within the Asian American narrative. So for example, one of the courses of food is the model minority myth. One of the courses of other courses of food is about the white male savior complex. One of them is about the interchangeable Asian. One of the cocktail courses is called revisionist history and it talks about how uh, there's a certain liquor that called Batavia Rack that is from Indonesia, but 
because they were colonized by the Netherlands, they don't actually even sell it through. It's all through the Netherlands now and how we understand that liquor is very through a, very much through a colonial mindset. So every single one of these courses is meant to spur conversation at the table. Um, we usually see people in groups of four to six and we host dinners usually under 40 people. So it is a relatively intimate small event. We've been touring this series from New York to all the way to Honolulu since 2018. Um, and for the virtual reality and the poetry component, um, the courses alternate between having a VR ac accompaniment and a poetry accompaniment. So for example, the model minority course is accompanied with VR and you actually go into a VR headset and you're watching a brushstroke by brushstroke recreation of the dish that you're about to eat. And there's audio narration from myself explaining what the symbolism is behind each of the ingredients, as well as the plating, as well as the cooking techniques and you know why I chose that, what that means. And it's like interwoven with a bit of personal narrative of why it's important to me. For the poetry, it's similar, it's just not quite as visual. Um, it's a poem that I've written about that course. So one of the poetry courses, for example, is about stereotypes that Asian communities have on each other. There's a lot of colorism in the Asian community, especially. So there's thing, uh, touches upon that. Um, we usually, as I mentioned, work with museums, but we've also been to different film festivals um, and kind of like different, interesting, like, applicable, I guess, uh, restaurants and such. So hopefully we'll be able to bring it back at some point again this year. We did one for Lunar New Year, and that's the last event we've done so far because of COVID. I'd love to understand a bit more, you know, how did you decide to integrate VR into the experiences? And how do you think about a way that was going to to mesh with everything? How do you think there's, it seems like there's a lot of elements. Um, I unfortunately haven't had a chance to attend and just, I think want to understand how you thought about kind of putting all those puzzle pieces together. Yeah. Um, I had already been kind of interested in virtual reality and done another food and VR project um, for this hotel chain in Nicaragua. Uh, we don't need to talk about it. It wasn't particularly exciting, but I think I was just learning how the platform worked. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I really liked about VR, like right off the bat, is besides that it's immersive and people call it the empathy machine because you really do feel like you're, you know, there. If you've ever seen those funny videos of people who are in VR, it looks like they're standing on the edge of the building, but really they're literally like standing on a beam that's like two inches off the floor and they'll be like screaming because they're so afraid. It's like because <laughs> things in VR do feel very real. So that's a big bonus. But one of the things that I thought was really cool was it, I feel it really levels out the playing field for extroverts and introverts when they're in a, you know, a close space together. One of the problems we would consistently see at our dinners is that, especially over the course of like two and a half to three hours of dining, as an introvert myself, you just get kind of tired, like you're literally physically a little tired if you've been drinking and eating, but also, you know, you're mentally kind of fatigued, especially if the conversation has been going well, you might be feeling energized, but you're also, you know, just starting to get a little tired um, and you'll start seeing the extroverts start like dominating the conversation you, you can see it in their body language you don't even have to they could be silent like you can mute them but you can tell what's going on at the table um, and as an introvert myself I was always thinking about like how could I make that dynamic better I just didn't know and when I started using VR it just seemed like oh there's something here I didn't really know how to tap into it but there's something here it's cool that 
with VR, you can be right next to someone, but feel like you're literally on a beach or on an island very far away from them. And then you could come back and be in that space with them again. You know, it kind of gives these gives introverts this sense of uh, like freedom, sense of space, a sense of self um, in the midst of what can be a very chaotic or a stressful public environment. And for extroverts, I mean, they're having a good time anyway. So for them, it's like they also get to in- interact with the art in their own way. But I think it was more for the introvert side, it kind of balanced out the energies at the table. And what we would notice is after people came out of the VR, then they would jump into conversation with a lot more vigor because literally they just needed a two minute break from each other. Oh, that's so interesting. That was not the answer that I was expecting. So <laughs> that's really, I'm glad I asked that to get that, that insight. Um, you know, speaking of, you know, reactions and uh, how people interact, what sort of reactions have you gotten from um, Asian in America and was the type of reactions you were expecting uh have you used any of that to iterate on it um yeah yeah i'm just curious yeah i mean for the most part the people who self-select to come into asian america obviously are a niche group of people so for the yeah for all of our dinner guests have had very positive reactions whether it's they're asian american i felt very affirming helped them you know be able to talk about some of their own experiences get to know each other at the table more deeply uh, for allies just kind of understanding terms that they might not have ever heard before. So many people don't even know what the model minority is because they're not Asian, so it doesn't really apply to them. So for the most part, we've heard really positive things for the dinners. However, we've also taken Asian America to more public settings where, for example, we did one at something called Photoville, which is kind of this like art exhibition in New York, and it's open to the public, totally free. Um, and it takes place on a couple weekends during the summertime, I think, spring, summertime. And because it was, you know, nobody had any contacts on what we were doing. We just had a booth there where people can watch some of the videos and look at photos. And we had one sample of things to eat. Um, there were some people who were just not, they just, I think they felt very uncomfortable and they were challenged and they realized that they probably had done things or said things that were probably pretty racist in the past because we're, we're all not perfect. We do bad things. And it really confronted them with probably feelings of, um, you know, insecurity or discomfort. And they said some pretty nasty things or not, I wouldn't say like overtly nasty, just like kind of underhanded, like, oh, I don't get it. It doesn't make sense. doesn't seem necessary, et cetera, et cetera. So it has been definitely an interesting exercise in watching how people deal with discomfort. Um, even people who do come to the dinners and have a positive reaction, you can see them grappling with the discomfort. Um, and many times the reason they have a positive interaction is because the other people at the table are welcoming, help you know give them positive feedback, are open, make them feel safe. Like without those structures in place, when people feel uncomfortable, they often, more often than not, lash out. So anyway, interesting psychological lesson for me. And in terms of iterating on it, um, we've noticed, at, I think at the beginning when we, I think, prime people less, you know, we still had the topics and we had everyone read and et cetera, but we weren't, we didn't send multiple pre-event emails with lists of questions. Um, we didn't you know, send reading material beforehand. Not that it's not <laughs> making it sound like it's a class or something, but <laughs> I, I promise it's fun. Um, I, I think because we didn't do that, sometimes people would just talk about, 
random stuff. And then they would just, the point of the dinner was kind of point, you know, it was gone for them. And so we began, began really focusing in on making sure that we were sending the, the right questions in advance when I gave introductions. At the beginning, really getting into the fact that this is not supposed to be just a fun dinner. This is educational and also food is inherently political and we want to, them to think about that tonight. So I think it's, you have to, you know, put yourself out there and set an example for pe- other people to follow. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I think one other thing you brought up was the sense of helping or getting people to think about, you know, belongingness and uh, where they most belong. And you said, you know, some of those themes resonate with you. And I, I just kind of wanted to ask you, you know, where do you feel like you most belong? That's a tough question. I, I grapple with that a lot because I often feel like I don't belong anywhere, especially being in part of an industry that as much as I think there's a lot of exciting people who are doing interesting new things, for the most part, is a pretty old, stodgy male-dominated industry. Um, If you just look at food media, who's on top? If you look at restaurants and who's on top, you can look at almost our, the restaurant um, coalition that like the White House built and it's like all chains and like old white men, right? It's literally all men. Um, So there's, there's that, you know, feeling like there's not quite a sense of belonging because I'm young, I'm Asian and I'm female, but then there's also because my business doesn't quite operate neatly in one space. We're not exactly a restaurant. We are a nonprofit, but we're not a charity. You know, we, we're not really a pop-up. We also do content. Like we're not a VR studio because we're not developers because we don't fit neatly anywhere. Um, many times it is hard to find, you know, the right people to connect with or the right people to just have a support network with. Um, that's something that I still often struggle with. Um, I also recently moved to Los Angeles from New York to try and expand our geographical presence and just finding a new group of people that I think female founders who are into what I'm trying to do. Um, because again, we're nonprofits and we're not raising any funding a lot of times female founders like are bonding or the fact that they can't raise capital, which I can't raise capital too, but that's a different, like different kind of capital. Right. Um, so it, yeah, it's, I think it's an, been an ongoing journey for me is like finding where I belong. Um, and so, and like, the Asian American community, especially in LA, is also has its own little identities. And then Asian Americans very different from, you know, Asian from Asia. So yeah, it's always just like trying to find what little intersection I happen to sit at well um, has been a challenge. That's really helpful. And I think, you know, it's something that so many people grapple with and to be able to also express some of those elements through a way that you are really good at expressing yourself is really, it's really interesting. So kind of, you know, we're, we're recording this, of course, uh, mid coronavirus, mid quarantine, (laughs) uh, you know, curious how your, your business has shifted. What are you working on right now? Does this giving you more time to, to reflect and think about upcoming projects? Have you shifted the way that you, help people engage through food and drink, uh, given that there's so many societal and uh, behavioral norms that are kind of changed, altered at the moment? Yeah, it's been, well, we've definitely been impacted a lot by COVID. Obviously, in-person events are halted. So we had a lot of things lined up uh, that are no longer happening. And we're not really sure when will happen again. I think the hardest thing was that we had just launched these uh, this community initiative called experimental salons where we bring industry professionals together to talk about like one specific thing in their industry and then we develop like resources and toolkits for everyone to 
have take action for that. So the last event um, that we did in February, the end of February, was with a bunch of food media professionals, and we had the question: um, How can food media better represent non-white cultures without tokenizing them? And we had this like amazing two-hour facilitated conversation, and then people stayed for like another three hours to talk. So it was just like really, it was clear that we had found something that. We, we wanted to pursue and it was really and we had another one lined up for new york and, and sf and we were like really heartbroken when that's just not happening and there is something about mm. having an, a really small intimate conversation like that in person versus having it on zoom which we're now kind of like trying to figure out if we can or cannot do so um we took some time I unfortunately had to furlough my staff and I think we were all just a little depressed for a few weeks and trying to find out our place in the world how to keep going also there was a lot of stress in that time of trying to find funding and we, yeah, we don't need to get into how the government totally botched that. But mm -hmm. the, after we, I think the dust settled, the main thing is like, we still want to do something to give back to our community um, because we, we're not a fully functional like restaurant. We don't have a space. We can't like produce tons of food and give it, even though I would love to. But, you know, me producing five things in my kitchen is not really as useful as what some of my colleagues are doing. Um, so we were thinking about how can we, communicate um, our service in a different way. What are we good at? And one of the things that I think my team is really awesome at is being able to synthesize difficult information and package them into resources and toolkits as, as we were already doing for these salons. Um, so we started this series called Community Skill Shares, where we have some experts in our community just come and volunteer their time, share their skills with other people, and we use it as a way to also raise money for their charity of choice as like a thank you for them spending the time and energy to do so. Um, so we started with um, finances. We had our my husband, who who's our acting CFO, um, talk about personal finances, as well as financial planning for small businesses. We had um, a seamstress do a mask making class. And then we just started um, a month long series about mental health. So we have two therapists that we're working with um, out of Chicago. Um, and we just covered like emotional responses to COVID-19, whether you're feeling like angry or guilty or uh, having trouble sleeping or really, really anxious, um, as well as like managing identity loss. And next week's session is about healthy coping mechanisms. Um, and then we're doing one about navigating relationships. Um, and then we have a civic engagement season with a hospitality activist that I'm a, a big fan of. She'll be talking about how to like get engaged locally, how to actually get laws passed. How does our government even work? Because most people are honestly, like myself included, I have no idea how the government works. Like how, who do we vote? Like where do we find information about stuff? Um, so that's exciting. I'm hoping to get this one person that I know on board about doing a class about how to make convert higher sales into your online platform right now, because that's pretty pertinent. So that's like mainly what we've been doing, just trying to find experts that would be useful to everyone, provide these resources for free while hopefully raising a little bit of money for their charities. Um, and then we're just working to put together, I mean, we're learning as well, putting together these really long um, resources documents that they can reference later. I think that's so great. And, it, you know, there's so many different ways that people are pivoting amid COVID and, um, you know, just was wanting to understand a bit more about what you were doing in this time because, um, it, it seems like so much of uh, your work and your career is really based on these these face to face interactions. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, how do you continue to um, 
get people to engage with food and drink and, mm-hmm. and potentially constrain situations. So, yeah, I mean, I've been personally, I've been like asked to do a couple of um, cooking classes and the like because I had speaking engagements lined up before COVID hit, and I've done a couple of them so far. I just think. Yeah, it's it's fine for now. It just is not yeah. the same. Like it really, it's never going to be the same, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's fair, and I think it's something that we're all we're all grappling with. Um, thankfully, podcasts uh, are pretty easy to do remote, but it is always <laughs> person. Um, so I I think you know one thing I I always like to ask of every guest that comes on the show is um you know advice that kind of sticks with you and mm-hmm. the way a quantify that almost is you know what's a piece of advice that someone's given you in the past that you've found yourself giving to others recently um and just kind of learning more about what that advice was yeah I always give the same well I have like two pieces of advice that kind of came from the same person um one was from a a friend who's also uh he's a restaurateur and also has like some chains of coffee shops, I think. Anyway, I just remember talking to him at the time and we were debating if we wanted to have a restaurant because we had been approached about maybe having a brick and mortar place. And he was just saying, like, I was like, oh, I don't know. What is it? And he was like, there's just no good time to do it. There's never going to be a good time. There's not going to be a day where it's Saturday and you're going to be like, yeah, let me upend my lifestyle, take the plunge into something I don't know that I may totally fail out and fail at and feel really good about myself. Like there's not, that's never going to be a thing. So you just have to decide you're going to do it or not. And I think that gave me a lot of comfort because I had been waiting for like some sign, you know, that I should, but honestly, there was no Mm -hmm. sign. It was just, do I want to do it? If so, I should do it or I don't want to do it. I should do something else. And kind of related with that is uh, just listening to other people doesn't really help that much in the long term in terms of them telling you if you should or should not do whatever you're grappling with. Because at the end of the day, only you know how that's going to make you feel. Him and obviously because he owns restaurants, he's like, I think you should do it. Restaurants are great. Um but I knew in my heart that restaurants were not what I wanted, at least at that point in my life. And I'm really glad that we didn't pursue it because God uh, God knows what I would be doing right now if that had been the case. Um, so, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think just at the end of the day, don't really listen to other people because their opinions are totally valid and they're useful. And obviously you sought them for a reason, but they're still just opinions. Right. But, you know, like, at the, I, I think this is interesting, this point that you bring up. It's, you know, but how do you understand and know which feedback or opinions to, to take and which feedback and opinions not, not dismiss, mm-hmm. but maybe not address, so to say? Yeah, I mean, that one's tough, especially because I remember this case where I had, I was really excited, I was presenting this idea that I had to, um, I wouldn't say a close friend, but someone I really respected, mm-hmm. another woman in the industry, and she just hated it. And I was so shocked. I was really hurt. And I think a big part of it, I was kind of hurt because I don't think she quite listened to me. She just thought she like assumed what she saw and she didn't like I was trying to explain to her more details and she wasn't really listening. Um, And I remember thinking like, oh, maybe this idea is like a terrible idea. I shouldn't do it at all. Um, And that idea has slowly morphed and changed into the studio. Um, But at the time, I 
remember feeling both resentful and angry with her and then confused about like what I should do with my life. Um, and I, I think it's like you have this guttural reaction that like if someone tells you something that isn't what you, it's not so much that you don't want to hear it. It's just, it's not the path that you want to take for yourself. Then just ignore it. You know, like her feedback was still valid. Clearly I didn't have my elevator pitch down cause she didn't understand what I wanted to do, mm-hmm. but I still wanted the, like, me pursuing whatever idea she had was definitely not what I wanted to do. I knew that my idea was the right path. I just had to finesse it more. So I I don't know if that totally answers the question. I think it's like finding like the pieces that actually make sense, but still pursue like with, with their feedback, even if it's not the feedback you were hoping to hear, but still pursuing your gut feeling of what your what the right decision is. Yeah, it's it's almost like understanding what your your values or essence are and really finding things that kind of align and enhance that. At least that's what I'm I'm getting from you from the story that that you're telling. So yeah, yeah I, I think that's fair. Um you know one one more thing I think just kind of to help listeners, you know, as you say, kind of hack their way to success or just understand, you know, how um, people really come into their own and, and find careers and do things that really resonate with them and they're they're successful at is, you know, is there a thing that you can point to resource-wise and mindset-wise that you think has really been crucial um, in the success that you've found professionally? I think the biggest... Um thing that I feel proud of having done for myself is every time I saw an opportunity, I kind of went for it and overrode, I would say like 80% of the opportunities I would apply for, I just felt completely not qualified to do, but I just went and applied for it anyway. Um, And I really encouraged everyone to do that because most of the time, A, I was qualified. I just, I still had to learn a couple of things, but I was qualified fundamentally to do it. And anything that I didn't really know, I learned um, quickly and I think to myself, there are so many clients that I have now that I've had for a couple of years or, you know, um, books that I've been able to work on and write that on, it just started with me responding back to a Twitter thread, you know, saying, Hey, I'm interested in writing this. Um, I have no experience, but I want to do it. Here's some other credentials that I have. And, you know, not everyone's going to say yes. I've been told no so many times, but the few people that do like, I worked literally, that was how I started with the first book that I wrote. That publisher ended up doing two books with me. And then I just finished another book for another publisher because of the first two books, which again, I was not qualified to write to start with, or I didn't feel qualified to write, but I was qualified to write. So um, yeah, just like going ahead and just at least trying to get the opportunity because why not? Yeah, I love that. I also think that's such a great note to end on. Um, I've been really impressed um, about the way that you talk about your work and just the steadfastness, I think, um, in understanding yourself. And I feel like that's been um, really key for you uh, in in the success that you've found in your career and um, you. just kind of hearing everything about the work that you're doing. I'm, I'm excited to continue to follow um, all the work that Studio Tao is doing and yeah, just thank you so much for the time. Well, thank you. Yeah, um, I'm really excited to be able to share on here. So thank you for having me. Want more Ta for Ta? Hit subscribe to get updates on our episodes. 
You can also hit us up on Twitter at Tafferta. And we love messages and engaging with you all over email at ta.for.ta.china at gmail.com. Ta for Ta Women's Success China is a proud member of the Seneca Network. Many thanks to the entire team, including Kaiser Kuo, Jason McRonald, and Jamie Luay. Don't forget to fill out the survey. We really want to hear from you, and you can find that in the show description. Until next time, I'm Juliana Batista, and this is Ta for Ta.